Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to IRIS. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 12th. An intensifying winter storm moves in, bringing moderate to heavy snow and strong wind. A winter storm warning is in effect for the entire area, lasting through early Saturday. A blizzard warning goes into effect Friday morning, continuing through Saturday morning. This is for heavy snowfall accumulations, along with widespread blowing and drifting snow and greatly reduced visibility. Snowfall continues through Friday, with periods of moderate to heavy snowfall rates at times. Scattered areas of snow showers or light snow last through Saturday. A total of 6 to 12 inches of snow is likely to be added on top of what we already have, with a few localized higher totals and spots. This snow will tend toward a fluffier nature as the storm progresses, after starting potentially wetter early on. Winds increase as the area of low pressure strengthens. Gusts of 40 to 50 miles per hour are likely, especially this afternoon and tonight. Widespread blowing and drifting of snow with blizzard conditions can be expected. Visibility will be one quarter mile or less with whiteout conditions possible in rural areas. Travel will become very difficult, if not impossible, as this occurs, and those who need not travel should stay home. If you must travel, plan on allowing a lot of extra time to get where you're going. This gives you the chance to drive slower without adding extra stress to your travel. Give extra distance between you and the car in front of you and begin braking for intersections and turns earlier than normal. Traveling through rural areas will be quite tough. Bring a winter weather survival kit if you must head out in those areas. Do not try to drive through large snowdrifts. It's a great way to get stranded. As snow winds down on Friday night into Saturday, temperatures begin to crash as an Arctic air mass moves in. Watch for a quick freeze on Saturday as temperatures drop. This may lead to some icy road conditions. Wind chills will already be well below zero by early in the day and will turn dangerously cold for much of the time from Saturday night into Monday. Wind chills of minus 20 to minus 40 will be possible during that time, especially at night as air temperatures drop below zero. This is the type of wind chill that you'll need to take precautions to avoid frostbite or hypothermia. Cover up exposed skin if heading outside and limit your time outside if possible. Now, on the front page of your courier, we have two articles to read. The first is, Opponents Rally. Lawmakers float court challenge to carbon pipeline projects. Our journalist for this story is Caleb McCullough, and the dateline is Des Moines. Iowa Republican lawmakers on Wednesday seemed resigned to the fact that restrictions on the eminent domain authority of carbon capture pipeline companies are not likely to become law anytime soon. While presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy accused the state's leaders of inaction on the issue, in a pair of rallies focused on carbon capture pipelines, the state legislative session and presidential election merged as lawmakers, presidential candidates, and their supporters 
touted their opposition to the controversial projects intended to boost ethanol profits. Iowa Representative Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, announced at the event he had switched his endorsement from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to Ramaswamy. Holt said it was Ramaswamy's message and vision that led him to make the switch. Quote, I think the world of Governor DeSantis. I think the world of his family and his campaign, Holt said. He's the second best governor in the country, behind Governor Reynolds. It is Vivek's message that resonates with me and the way he says it, unquote. Ramaswamy called the pipelines part of the climate change agenda and said there is no need to reduce carbon emissions to combat climate change. He said allowing eminent domain to seize land for the projects would set a dangerous precedent. Lawmakers who in the past supported restrictions on eminent domain authority for carbon capture pipelines, conceding that a change of law was unlikely, offered a second plan, challenged the approvals for the use of eminent domain in hopes it reaches the U.S. Supreme Court and leads to a 20-year-old precedent being overturned. If the Iowa Utilities Board approves a pending application from Summit Carbon Solutions to build a pipeline using eminent domain, Holt said the matter could be appealed to the state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court. Quote, if they choose to grant eminent domain to those pipelines, they will have exceeded their authority, and I believe that Iowa Supreme Court will possibly make a final decision. Or maybe it will be the United States Supreme Court, he said. Summit Carbon Solutions, one of two companies looking to build a CO2 pipeline in the state, has requested eminent domain authority from the Iowa Utilities Board to build a sprawling 2,000-mile pipeline across five states. The pipeline, like others that have been proposed, would capture CO2 from ethanol plants in Iowa and shuttle it to an underground reservoir in North Dakota. Ethanol proponents say it would allow them to sell to low-carbon markets and boost profits for Iowa farmers. Iowa law dictates hazardous liquid pipelines can only be granted eminent domain authority if they, quote, promote the public convenience and necessity. Opponents of the pipeline say that, as projects managed and owned by private companies, CO2 pipelines do not meet that threshold. The U.S. Supreme Court decided in a 5-4 to four decision in 2005 that projects that serve a, quote, public purpose, including some economic development, could be eligible for eminent domain authority. That case, pipeline opponents say, was wrongly decided and should be overturned. Ramaswamy also pledged he would support efforts to overturn that decision in court. Ramaswamy targeted Republican leadership in Iowa and his fellow Republican presidential candidates for not coming out forcefully against the pipelines. Quote, We deserve to understand where our proposed leaders are on an issue that actually affects us, Ramaswamy said. Quote, If those of us here understand it, if farmers from the Northwest, the Southeast understand this issue, why don't your Republicans in this state, the people who work in this building, 
understand they should be here, unquote. Ramaswamy urged the pipeline opponents gathered at the Capitol to support him in the January 15th Iowa caucuses. DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley have both said they oppose eminent domain being used for projects like the Summit Pipeline. Former President Donald Trump, who signed a law to expand the tax credits the projects receive while president, told supporters at an event last year, quote, that's going to be taken care of, but he has not expressly opposed the pipelines. House Speaker Pat Grassley and many other House Republicans supported a law last year to restrict the eminent domain authority of carbon capture pipelines. The law did not get taken up in the Senate. Iowa Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer said in an interview before the session that his caucus was split on the issue. Quote, We have some of the strongest eminent domain laws in the country right now, he said, and we're certainly watching that progress very closely. There are people in our caucus all over the board, unquote. Governor Kim Reynolds has supported the projects and their impact on the ethanol industry, and she has said she supports Iowa's current eminent domain laws. Holt challenged Republicans who have not come out to oppose the use of eminent domain for the pipeline projects, saying they are in conflict with the state's party platform. Quote, Iowa state government is controlled by Republicans, and our platform makes clear our opposition to the use of government power to see these private property or other private property, he said. Quote, and that is exactly what the CO2 pipelines are, unquote. Next article is, Where do Republican presidential candidates stand on agriculture? This written by Caleb McCullough of the Couriers Des Moines Bureau. And we start out with a photograph showing former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley walking the Iowa State Fair with Governor Kim Reynolds on August 12th last summer. They're both wearing jeans and t-shirts. Dateline Des Moines. Campaigning in Iowa over the last year, Republican presidential candidates have made frequent appeals to the state's agriculture community and said they will prioritize farmers as president. As Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses draw to a close, here's what candidates have to say about how they would approach farm issues and agriculture. Donald Trump. Campaigning in Iowa, former President Donald Trump often says his presidency was beneficial for farmers, pointing to the billions in subsidies given to farmers to compensate for losses incurred from his tariff battles with China. Quote, Nobody has ever been better to Iowa and the farmers than Trump, he said in a campaign rally in October. During his presidency, Trump rolled back the controversial, quote, Waters of the United States regulation, which governs how the EPA can regulate waterways. Republicans and farm groups argue a broad interpretation of the Clean Water Act, as the rule looked under former President Barack Obama, overregulates the ponds and streams on farmers' properties and interferes with their work. Trump says he will rescind other environmental regulations set by Biden's EPA, which he says are a burden to farmers. In 2019, 
the Trump administration approved the year-round sale of E15, gasoline blended with 15% ethanol. After oil companies sued the administration over the rule, a court struck it down in 2021. Quote, I fought for the Iowa ethanol like no president in history, he said, at a July Farmers for Trump rally. Ron DeSantis. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed moving the headquarters of the U.S. Department of Agriculture to Iowa in an effort to decentralize federal government personnel and offices out of Washington, D.C. He said in a Des Moines Register op-ed that he would rescind environmental regulations imposed on agriculture and, quote, empower our farmers to make the most of our nation's land. DeSantis has said he supports allowing the sale of E15 year-round and would allow options for higher blends like E30. He has criticized President Joe Biden's push to incentivize electric vehicle production as hurting American farmers and the ethanol industry. While in Congress, DeSantis proposed and supported legislation to repeal the Renewable Fuel Standard which requires oil refineries to blend ethanol into gasoline. He has since said he favors keeping that standard in place. Biofuels Vision 2024, a coalition supporting biofuel production, says DeSantis has agreed to its eight policy priorities, which includes allowing the year-round sale of E15, preserving ethanol tax credits, and opposing electric vehicle mandates. Also key to DeSantis's agriculture policy is the promise to ban Chinese entities from buying land in the U.S. In March, DeSantis signed a law banning China and other, quote, countries of concern from purchasing land in Florida, and he says he will take similar action on the federal level. DeSantis has also called to decouple the U.S. economy from China, which is a major importer of American agriculture goods. DeSantis said in an interview with the Quad City Times that the process should be done strategically and methodically. He said he would work to keep those markets open while also exploring new markets in Asia for American farmers. Quote, We've put ourselves in the position where we're dependent on China, he said. Quote, selling things to people, fine, but being dependent on them is not in our national security interests, unquote. Now, Nikki Haley. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has cast China as the foe of American agriculture, arguing that Chinese entities buying U.S. land is a threat to the national security. She said she would block China from buying new land in the United States and take back the land that is already owned by Chinese entities. In line with other candidates, Haley also opposes environmental regulations she says place a burden on farmers and wants to work with farmers voluntarily to solve water quality and other issues. Quote, When you look at family farms, especially that we're losing, They can't have any more regulation or pressure, she said, in an interview with the Sioux City Journal editorial board. Quote, they'll do what they need to do to keep things safe. They want to do that. But I think the bureaucracy 
that's coming down on farmers has been way too excessive, unquote. Haley has called for repealing the federal gas tax, which she says adds to farmers' expenses. Like DeSantis, she has received a nod from the Coalition of Biofuels and Agriculture Groups for supporting their eight priority issues. Haley also launched a, quote, Farmers for Nikki coalition in November, led by the former president of the American Soybean Association and Iowa Soybean Association. Vivek Ramaswamy Vivek Ramaswamy, an Ohio biotech entrepreneur, has made opposing carbon capture pipelines a central focus of his campaign. The pipelines are seen by the ethanol industry as a vital piece of their economic future, allowing them to sell the fuel in low-carbon markets and allowing for the production of sustainable aviation fuel. Ramaswamy has opposed the use of eminent domain to seize land for pipelines construction. Summit Carbon Solutions, one of two companies proposing CO2 pipelines in the state, requested eminent domain authority from the Iowa Utilities Board for construction of the project. The board is still weighing the permit application. Quote, Why are the Republican puppets that claim to represent you quietly supporting this decision, or even worse, ignoring? Ramaswamy said during a rally on the subject last year. He has also called for the United States to declare economic independence from China. Ramaswamy said he favors the renewable fuel standard. Speaking to the Quad City Times, he said he would prefer, quote, consumer choice at the pump over a government mandate, but the renewable fuel standard is the second best alternative, unquote. Next is Asa Hutchinson. Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, has been critical of calls from Trump to raise tariffs on foreign nations and calls to end trade with China, which he said would hurt Iowa's farmers. He told the Quad City Times editorial board he would, instead, drive up domestic production of key products while allowing farmers to sell to China. Speaking with Drake University students, Hutchinson said his experience leading an agricultural state and growing up on a farm will help him make good agriculture policy while president. Quote, we need a president that understands how important the farm bill is, that hasn't been passed yet, that helps guide the farming economy here in Iowa, he said. Quote, we need to have a president that understands that agriculture depends on the global market, unquote. And lastly, we have Ryan Binkley. Ryan Binkley, a Texas pastor and CEO, has been strongly opposed to the creation of carbon dioxide pipelines in Iowa and the use of eminent domain to seize private land for the projects. Quote, the Constitution is so inconvenient, but so important, unquote, he said. If 99% of the people want to take my landowners' rights, they just don't have the right, unquote. Next, residents begin to connect to Waterloo Fiber, and they are excited to switch. Story written by Maria Cooper. Dateline Waterloo. The first customers are hooked up to the new municipal fiber project 
and they are raving about the switch. Brent Gilmore and his family now use Waterloo Fiber. The Gilmores, who live on Sheridan Road, are one of four households participating in a test period for the new broadband network. The chosen customers will use Waterloo Fiber for a few weeks before deciding whether to switch or to stay with their current internet provider. Quote, Once the testing period is over, we'll sign a contract and we'll disconnect our Mediacom internet, Gilmore said. Gilmore said he's used Mediacom for decades, but was ready to be a guinea pig because he's been anticipating the day Waterloo Fiber would be implemented. And he isn't the only one. The creation of a municipal utility service in Waterloo was approved in the 2005 election, but at that time, no funding was allocated. In the 2022 referendum, residents overwhelmingly approved a $20 million bond issue for municipal broadband. More than 6% of Waterloo's registered voters participated in the election, and the measure was passed with 84% approval. The bonds are backed by the city's ability to tax its property owners, but the city plans to repay them with revenue generated by the broadband utility, as well as revenues from utilities, sewer, and stormwater services. Eric Legg, Waterloo's Fiber General Manager, said the implementation was a long time coming, but the COVID-19 pandemic accelerated the project. Quote, I really think when COVID hit, it kind of clicked with people that, oh, we need a better choice, he said. I really think that the vote in 22 kind of reflected people's experiences during COVID. Over the past year, the City Council approved multiple bids for construction and consulting as well as grants to help pay for the project. The total project will cost an estimated $115 million. Most of that money, nearly $78 million, will go to ITG Communications to build out the fiber network. The city has obtained close to $30 million in grant funding. Although Gilmore isn't paying for Waterloo Fiber yet, he expects his internet bill to be cut in half. He currently pays $114.99 per month for one gigabit of speed with 3,000 gigabits of usage. When he ran a speed test, he was averaging 50 to 150 megabytes per second, about 10% of the speed he pays for. But it is still fast compared to the speed most people have. With Waterloo Fiber's test period, Gilmore is being guaranteed the same 1 gigabyte per second speed for $69.95 per month. Over the holidays, he and his son did a speed test and saw the Wi-Fi speed was 950 Mbps to 1 gigabit per second. Gilmore's son said it was faster than the connection he uses at the University of Iowa. Quote, over New Year's, we had 10 people on different devices and we didn't have any issues. Gilmore said, noting people were on their phones, using streaming services, and playing video games. Waterloo Fiber offers options of 100 megabits per second, 300 megabits per second, 1 gigabyte per second, and 10 gigabytes. Legg said families would benefit from the higher packages 
while someone living alone could use the 300 megabit speed. He thinks most customers will use 300 megabits or one gigabyte. For just internet services, prices are $29.95, $49.95, $69.95, and $109.95 monthly, respectively. Waterloo Fiber will also offer phone and television services for higher costs. A residential internet phone and TV package ranges from $86.95 to $223.95 monthly, depending on the chosen speed. There will be a discounted rate for households qualifying for the Universal Service Administrative Company's Lifeline program. Residents can use that program if their income is 135% or less than the federal poverty guidelines. If someone in a household participates in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, Medicaid, Supplemental Security Income, Federal Public Housing Assistance, or Veterans Pension and Survivors Benefit, they can receive 100 megabytes for $29.95. Households using Lifeline can also receive a $30 per month subsidy, ultimately making Internet for those households free. Eligible households must apply for the program through the Federal Communications Commission and contact Waterloo Fiber. Leg said compared with other Internet providers, Waterloo's fiber pricing is transparent and straightforward. He said many companies increase prices after a year of usage, which many people may not realize. Another company, Metronet, is currently installing a fiber network in parts of the city. Leg said Waterloo Fiber is not sharing anything with Metronet, but the company may have to dig up land where Waterloo Fiber has previously installed fiber optic cables to lay its own fiber and vice versa. Residents can identify which utility is being installed by the trucks and employees in their neighborhoods. Those affected by Metronet's construction should receive notice 30 days in advance. Waterloo Fiber is expected to finish work around Fire Station 6 in the Ansboro Ridgeway neighborhood in February, and then move on to the San Marnin Avenue and Crossroads area. Work is being completed in three phases. Phase 1, in South Waterloo, is expected to be finished by the end of this year. Phase 2, in Northeast Waterloo, should be finished by the end of 2025 and the final phase in Northwest Waterloo is expected to be finished by the end of 2026. Leg said the most accurate way for a resident to find out when they will be hooked up to the new service is by calling the office at area code 319-291-0175. Those interested can also register on their website, waterloofiber.com, to be contacted in the future about when services are available. Again, that phone number to call is 319-291-0175. Downtown Waterloo CVS Pharmacy is closing at the end of January. Story written by Maria Cooper. Dateline Waterloo. A downtown pharmacy is shuttering its doors at the end of January. The CVS Pharmacy 
at 205 Franklin Street will close on January 31st. Customers' prescriptions will be transferred to the location at 1825 East San Marnin Drive, the Cedar Falls location at 2302 West 1st Street will remain open, as well as the pharmacy inside the Waterloo Target. The company also offers prescription home delivery services. Management at the store said they could not talk to members of the media and redirected the courier to speak to a corporate spokesperson. The company's retail communications manager said the closure was a, quote, difficult decision in an emailed statement. Quote, Maintaining access to pharmacy services in the communities we serve is an important factor we consider when making store closure decisions, Matt Blanchett said. Quote, Other factors include local market dynamics, population shifts, a community's store density, and ensuring there are other geographic access points to meet the needs of the community. Unquote. Once the store closes, the nearest retail pharmacy will be 1.7 miles away at the Walgreens or High V on Logan Avenue. People's Clinic Pharmacy is just over half a mile away from the current CVS location, but only patients of the clinic can use that pharmacy. An October article from CNN said that in 2021, CVS announced plans to close 900 stores by 2024. The press release stated that all employees at the Franklin Street location are being offered comparable roles within the company. And now, listeners, we'd just like to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the recording of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 12th on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this announcement. Imagine someone hiding a gambling problem. How exhausting it must be. Seeing the losses pile up and feeling powerless to control it. Now imagine it's someone you love. Your spouse, your child, your friend. Talk to them to understand where they're coming from. Because anyone can have a gambling problem. They just need help getting their life back. Call 1-800-BETS-OFF to get help for them and you. Now let's turn to the opinion page. Our first editorial comes to us from the Storm Lake Times pilot, written by Art Cullen. A place to start. The school shooting in Perry last week was, by its nature, about guns. There's a lot more to it than that. The shooter carried a standard shotgun and handgun, we understand. Deadly enough. Iowa Starting Line reported that the teenage shooter, who killed himself and another student, plus wounding five others, long had been a victim of bullying, according to friends. This is about a teenager who had access to guns and ammo with deep emotional scars. The killer victimized a community that made him a victim. It's about guns. It's about social media. How does a boy in Perry learn how to make an improvised explosive device? It's about a culture of ridiculing people 
who are different or weak. With a gun, they suddenly become somebody. It's about an overwhelmed school system where society lays its intractable problems on teachers and the building nurse to solve. It's about what we teach our children. Do we teach love and acceptance every day and always? Or do we teach exclusion and reprobation to those who don't meet our expectations? We believe that Storm Lake is trying to address these problems as a whole. We are putting mental health counselors in schools. Police are in schools or literally feet away. Buildings are secure. Protocols are in place. Yet, elementary students act out killing each other, and they mean it. Our friend, the guidance counselor in Sioux Falls, has received multiple death threats from a second grader. The first thing you want to do is make sure that child cannot get a gun. Second, we need a better way for that child to get immediate help without red tape or cost. It seems like a place to start, rather than retreating to our concerns in another vain debate as a shooting goes on. Limit access to guns. Do what 90% of Americans agree on. Background checks, waiting periods, ban on high-capacity magazines, permits for concealed weapons. You've heard it all before. Increase funding for schools and mental health. Those would be two places to start. Snuff the hate and fear. Gays, Jews, Muslims, immigrants. It feeds the evil. We're not doing enough in Storm Lake. We are not so different from Perry, and just as vulnerable. We don't know quite where to go, but we do know where to start. Less access to guns and hate, more access to support and dignity. Now this next one is titled, Ivy Leaguers and Minor Leaguers, and was written by Art Cullen and appeared in the Storm Lake Times Pilot. I don't give a damn about Harvard or Yale. I care deeply about Buena Vista University. Leave the University of Iowa alone, because that's where the seeds for Field of Dreams were germinated. We should be more concerned with livestock disease, research funding for Iowa State University, than whether Ivy League presidents were too dull-witted to handle questions from congressional simpletons. Republicans have set their sights on higher education in Iowa. They want to root out diversity brainwashing and stuff like that. They maintain there's a whole lot of liberal grooming going on in Ames, Iowa City, and even Storm Lake. It is due for a leash in an election year. Banish the elitists. Your bookkeeper might have attended Buena Vista. Your veterinarian, no doubt, went to Iowa State. Caitlin Clark is surely elite but not elitist, go Hawks. And it is a damn fine children's hospital to which we wave on football Saturdays in Iowa City. Such is the state of our politics. Pick a side, Palestinian or Israeli. Hamas is a terrorist organization that murders innocents. Israel terrorized Gaza and intends to clear out the Palestinians. A college president worth her pay would say, quote, each side is wrong. There is no place for calls to violence anywhere in America, including on campus. Otherwise, we will defend free speech, unquote. I could have come up with that line on the spot, and I barely earned a journalism degree. From St. Thomas, 
at the time a small men's college in St. Paul, with a decent hockey team. Lucky for me, if you had a solid C average and an Irish name, you were a lock for admission. Me and the boys thought Tommy Tech pretentious when it came to a regional university. In our day, the rector of Ireland Hall, who lived on the second floor for what must have been 100 years, Father Scooter Laban, put out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at night for the stoners to feed on. You could say just about anything you wanted, because nobody listened to you. None of us could have located Gaza on a map back then. I got out with a solid C average. We did okay. Oscar became a psychologist, Duffy a workers' comp lawyer, Lentz a mental health care worker. We tried. Harvard, meanwhile, fostered RFK II, Ted Cruz, Larry Summers, and other weirdos who read all the wrong books and have not done much productive work. Instead of pursuing their own course of political correctness, I wish politicians would increase funding into avian flu research through the National Animal Disease Lab at Ames and Iowa State University. Nobody is talking about that. Nothing nefarious is going on anywhere near the Campanelle. It is not anti-Semitic to question whether sending more arms to lunatics controlling the Netanyahu government is wise. The kids and aims are okay. It is not elitist to expect that your children will get post-secondary education. There was simply no question with our parents. You will go to college because that's how you get ahead in America. You must learn a trade. Education allows you more control over your life. Brother John attended what we consider an elite college, Notre Dame. Sister Anne went for a couple of years to Mount Mercy in Cedar Rapids. She can write a funnier column than he can if she wants to, and John knows it. Their experience on campus had very little to do with their politics, which were in place by the age of reason, seven. Daddy bounced us on his knee and extolled the virtues of Harry Truman, who attended business college for a year in Kansas City before dropping out. Truman, by the way, was the first world leader to recognize Israel within 11 minutes of its creation as a nation. Don't blame him for the conflict. It was a mess handed off from the crumbling British Empire. You could learn that any place except Iowa, where it could be labeled a divisive concept, and banned from the classroom. Seriously. Joe Biden went to the University of Delaware, a land-grant school like Iowa State. Not exactly Ivy League elitist. He was a crafty running back who nearly flunked out. Biden should be remembered as a more consequential president than Yale baseball star George H.W. Bush. Biden was dealt an awfully bad hand with the pandemic and such, and has played it as well as a fighting blue hand could. His mother would tell him to cut Netanyahu down to size, but it's probably not so easy with all the great Ivy League thinkers in his ear. Apparently, it is not easy finding ways to fund soil health research, Storm Lake's urgent and chronic water problems, or keeping rural Iowa from sliding off the map. These are not the concerns of the Penn or Harvard former presidents, 
nor of their Ivy League congressional interrogators, nor of the great East Coast opinion factories. They are the concerns of Buena Vista University, where education for service is the motto. Quaint, no? We turn to the New York Times for an editorial written by Pamela Paul. When you return those pants, there's a price you don't see. January is a time to redo, revise, and recommit. It is also the time to return things. We can click the return button first on the season's passive-aggressive and otherwise unwanted gifts. An upgraded espresso machine, perhaps not so necessary. Farewell, too, to the aspirational dress purchased but never quite fit into without a squeeze. By some estimates, returning purchases in America reached record levels in 2022. The portion of purchases returned has jumped twofold to 16% from 8% of sales between 2019 and 2022. And returning things online has become so easy, just scan the downloaded QR code, that people return things bought online at three times the rate they return things purchased in stores because it's easy and free on our end. It's tempting to think our unwanted shoes whiz off to whichever Oz from which they came, neatly refurbished like the Tin Man, and sent on to the next customer. But the actual process is far from a virtuous circle of retail recycling, as is true for many things online, bullying, disinformation, conspiracy theories. When something is easy and free, it usually extracts a terrible, if largely hidden, cost. The massive costs of return packaging, processing, and transportation are easy to imagine. But what many online shoppers don't realize is that many returned goods don't get resold at all. Because returns are so expensive for online retailers, companies have focused on making the processes cheap and easy as possible for themselves. And for the most part, the planet pays the price. Online returns create 16 million tons of carbon emissions, or the equivalent of 3.5 million cars on the road for an entire year. It's often cheaper for the seller to simply throw the item away than to inspect for damage, repackage, and resell. Dumping returns, sometimes called destroyed in the field, or damaged out, is often less costly than reusing them. A number of startups have created middlemen services to streamline the process or increase circularity by diverting returns to online resellers or charities, but the problem persists in grotesquely large quantities. In the United States, 2.6 million tons of returned clothes wound up in landfills in 2020, and that's just clothing. But even if we consider just that one category, the news is dismayingly grim. Online clothes shopping accounts for a good amount of returned waste. First, and most obviously, not everything that looks adorable online fits the body waiting for it at home. Trying to figure out if a pair of jeans will flatter by looking at professional photos and inseam measurements is hard enough. But widespread disparities in sizing conventions, in which brands 
designate sizes almost entirely for marketing reasons make it even harder. Brands aimed at the rich and skinny may be French in their true-to-size austerity, while mass brands aiming to please often sell a size 2 that fits more like a size 6. Customers return approximately 24% of clothing purchased online. According to Earth.org, fashion is already the world's third most polluting industry after construction and food. The environmental disaster of fast fashion, boosted by social media, online influencers, and paid sponsorships, exacerbates the problem. Those same trends are shifting other aspects of shopping habits. A majority of Americans, 63%, admit to purchasing multiple sizes online to try on at home in a practice called bracketing or planned returns. According to a 2022 Vogue business report, quote, customers have substituted the fitting room for at-home try-ons, buying multiple sizes online with the plan to return in bulk, unquote. This is particularly prevalent among millennial and Gen Z shoppers. Pursuing the most flattering palette, they also frequently buy the same item in multiple colors to be road-tested at home. Another contemptible little practice is wardrobing, wearing an item of clothing once before returning it. Eco-disaster figures are always so mind-boggling, it's easy to block them out as too big a problem for a single individual to consider. And many of the human, i.e. not corporate, costs of our online shipping habits materialize only over time. Like most other human decisions, when an action looks too easy, it usually requires taking extra care. The internet likes to show off its clean and green aura in shiny contrast to the messy materials of our brick-and-mortar and paper world. But free and risk-free, it is not. We're already well aware at this point that the internet screws up more than just our politics and our minds. As conscientious users grow more informed about the ancillary effects of our online habits and attempt more personal control over their internet selves, they may also try to shop more mindfully, perhaps adding it to the scope of a New Year's resolution around digital detox. January could be a time to redo, revise, and recommit to a lot less returning. Now, Back to the Storm Lake Times pilot for an opinion piece written by Amy Locker, Iowa's Big Show. Iowans have held tremendous influence in the past with their big show, known as the First in the Nation Caucuses. The caucuses are grassroots politics at its best, as Iowan as the butter cow. Besides putting our state in the spotlight, they pump millions of dollars into our economy and afford every citizen between our river borders the opportunity to meet and assess the presidential candidates, who were everywhere. The Republican candidates still are, as their caucus has survived. The Democrats, not so much. This is largely because they bungled the results of the 2020 caucus, trying out a new app to glean additional information. Turned out it didn't give much information at all, including who the winner was. 
The world waited and watched and waited some more. But in the end, there were no timely or tangible caucus results to report. So the big show is not as big this year, as roughly half of the prospective caucus goers are not traditionally caucusing. The Democrats are conducting their first ever mail-in caucus, with the voting beginning in January, date not yet announced. They will still hold a traditional caucus, but to discuss party business only. The results of this mail-in caucus will be announced on March 5th, a.k.a. Super Tuesday, severely diluting Iowa's influence and basically treating it as one of many primaries that day. Lest Republicans think they are above such snafus, let us remember 2012, when they, too, muddled their reporting and also threatened the legitimacy of Iowa's first-in-the-nation status. They, too, could not declare a winner and waffled between the top two, Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum, who had each garnered around 25% of the vote. In a preliminary report, they first declared Romney the winner. Two weeks later, they announced the context was, in fact, a draw. After that, they reversed themselves and declared Santorum the winner. What? The rest of the world shook their heads in disbelief. The Iowa GOP then wrote off eight of their precincts' vote counts, memorializing the fact that no one will ever know who did actually win. Yet, they held on. And on Monday, January 15th, all registered Republicans will have a chance to again caucus in person. So, what if both parties stepped up big time in this election and turned in definitive and researched results? With or without a caucus, everyone in Iowa and in every state has the privilege of becoming involved, not just in this election, but in all which impacts us and the issues and people we care about, engaging in our own life and times and caring enough to affect positive change in the world changes it already. What if Iowa started the swing to another candidate besides the usual suspect? If they endorsed a fresh perspective and gave their first-in-the-nation boost to someone besides the poll's front-runner, refusing to accept his litany of legal entanglements and seemingly limitless propensity to create chaos. If we are not plunged back into the deja vu all over again, and Republicans pushed forward a viable challenger to Joe Biden, one with real answers and a real plan. Nikki Haley would fit that bill. This coming November 5th, as we vote to choose the best person for arguably the most important job on the planet, let us not have to decide between despot and doddering. Let's show the world those caucus gaffes were aberrations, that we have the judgment and good sense to be entrusted with the job. Let's regain our status as a nation, beginning with our state. Iowans are leaders. Let's lead. Amy Locker, the writer of this opinion piece, is a novelist and opinion journalist and writes from Cedar Falls. Now from the Des Moines Register. How will Iowa feed 240,000 children this summer? State's rejection of summer EBT program could affect thousands of hungry kids. Story written by F. Amanda Tugade 
and Michaela Ram, and the dateline is Des Moines. K.D. Kusta thought she had it figured out. Since 2020, when the federal government launched the pandemic electronic benefits transfer, the single mother from Grimes used the $240 it provided for the summer to help with groceries. No easy task, since she spends $250 to $350 a week on food alone. With four daughters between the ages of 2 and 10, two of whom are in school and eligible for $40 a month in PEBT benefits during summer months, she tried to stretch the money as far as she could while eyeing the best deals from Hy-Vee, Aldi, and Costco. It was hard, but, quote, I made it happen, the 29-year-old mother said, and it's going to get harder. Kusta is among thousands of parents affected by Governor Kim Reynolds' recent decision to opt out of the summer EBT program, which the federal government operates to provide relief for low-income families like hers with school-aged children. Though summer is months away, Kusta is already thinking of ways to make sure her children will be fed. That could mean more trips to local food pantries or relying on area nonprofits such as Urban Dreams. Quote, it's going to have to be a little bit of a cutback, she said. Iowa is one of 17 states that declined to participate in the summer EBT program this year, effectively turning down about $29 million in federal food aid for low-income families. Managed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the summer EBT program was created to provide support to families who rely on free and reduced-price school lunches during the school year by providing them with a prepaid debit card during the summer months. Families would get $40 per eligible child, 120 total per child, to purchase groceries while schools are dismissed for summer break. Approximately 240,000 Iowa children would be eligible to receive summer EBT benefits this year, according to the Food Research and Action Center. This would have been Iowa's first opportunity to participate in the federal program, which has been piloted in other states since 2011. In all, 33 states and six U.S. territories have signed on to participate in the program this summer, according to the USDA. Iowa did participate in the PEBT program, a similar federal program that provided funding to families during the summer months to purchase groceries as part of the government's response to COVID-19. During the summer of 2023, 244,798 children in Iowa received pandemic EBT benefits, according to state officials. That program ended with the end of the federal public health emergency last year. Without the summer food funding, some experts have raised concerns about the state's ability to meet Iowans' needs at a time when food insecurity is on the rise. Why did Iowa officials say no to the EBT program? In her announcement last month, Governor Kim Reynolds raised concerns about the program's failure to promote healthy eating habits among its users, stating, quote, an EBT card 
does nothing to promote nutrition at a time when childhood obesity has become an epidemic, unquote. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 12th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. You can listen to a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>